Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week is week four of Wet Hot Mutant Summer, our annual X-Men coverage. And this week we are delivering Exhibit A in my personal argument that 2001 was a creative high point for the franchise. And we are going to specifically be discussing Ultimate X-Men issues number one through six in trade form. These are collected as Ultimate X-Men volume one. And the story arc is titled The Tomorrow People. And before we do the full jump into what all's happening, why is it happening? I'll just do our creative team roll call right up top. These issues are written by Mark Miller with Adam Kubert as the penciler. We have a variety of inkers, including Art Fibbert, Danny Mickey, and Joe Weems. And we have colorist Richard Eisenhoff and Avalon Studios, with lettering by Richard Starkings and Comic Craft's Wes Abbott. And I just think these comics are neat. A lot of this is going to be me just going, I think these comics are neat. They're pretty neat. They're pretty neat. For any listeners who are unfamiliar of what this is or what this line was in the early 2000s, as Marvel was basically bankrupt and not doing so hot, not just Marvel, but the entire American comic book industry post the bubble crashing and all of that in the 90s. There are various efforts to try and attract new audiences, get readership and sales numbers up, and basically trying to compete with other sorts of media as comic book sales were dwindling. And a lot of what influences what's going on here creatively, editorially, is going to come from that perspective, where the Ultimate line was essentially a separate imprint from Marvel that had nothing to do with the mainline usual canon stories, and instead was a alternate universe, essentially, where popular creators came in and were tasked with sort of 
reinventing Marvel's top franchises from the ground up with the chief goal of trying to make the stories easy jumping on points for new readers who might be intimidated by the idea of following mainline comics that had 40 years of continuity sort of going into them. And so Ultimate X-Men number one basically is the beginning of a whole new X-Men story and is meant to be a jumping on point. And it sort of has all those editorial wants feeding into it, as well as them trying to sort of piggy bank off of the excitement and the aesthetics of the 2000 X-Men movie directed by Brian Singer. So this also more or less at the same time as Morrison and Quietly's new X-Men is sort of doing a whole like black lever aesthetic to try and fit the movie. Not like literally the same outfits, but just sort of going with that. The X-Men are cool. They look like the Matrix sort of shit going on. And yeah, it's it's meant to be a bold new X-Men story that's not too heavy on continuity. And so Mark Miller and Adam Kubert set out to do that. And they did that by introducing probably about 30 characters and concepts in the space of six issues. It's a busy six issues. I It feels important to note that apparently Mark Millar was like not an X-Men fan and had basically seen the movie and that's kind of it because it's wild that he then like how much of this was him looking at things on the wiki and being like oh I'll have that that's what I want to know yeah like I'm curious of the thought process of probably some mix of being like okay this was in the movie um I it's... know this character was in the 90s cartoon. I saw this one in Marvel vs. Capcom. Oh, that looks cool. Let me grab that. It's kind of the movie team to an extent where it is a bit of a mix of the 05 and a bit of a mix of the giant size characters. Um, I mean, Colossus and Beast weren't in the movie. And Iceman was only a little bit in the movie. But I feel like if you watch the movie and you're like, what is another, like, not that exact lineup, but another lineup that has that vibe of, like, Greatest Hits X-Men, this is solidly one of those. Yeah, because we have, naturally, we have Professor X here. And then on the X-Men team itself, we have Cyclops, Jean Grey, Wolverine, and Storm. So you have the core four from the movie, and then you've got Beast, Iceman, and Colossus, who sort of, like, Beast and Iceman bring in more of the 05, and then, like, Beast had that popularity at that time from, like, being beloved in the 90s cartoon. And then Colossus is the one I'm kind of most surprised that they chose to use. I'm thankful because I like what they do with Ultimate Colossus, they probably also wanted, like, a bruiser, heavyweight type of character. But, yeah, it's very, like, movie X-Men plus a couple. Yeah, Colossus makes a lot of sense because you want the big guy. And that is something notably missing from the team in that first film that I think they 
kind of needed actually thinking back to that movie there's no like cool like feats of strength because none of the characters are can lift a heavy thing guys and you need that for this because we're opening with sentinels yes proper ones 50 foot tall ones yeah the opening page of this issue gives us the caption sometimes it's dangerous to be a little different and we see these people just sort of walking on the street and then you turn the page and pages two and three of ultimate x-men number one are a gorgeous two-page spread of the sentinels descending from the sky and we see like the city from above and just like a massive like architectural view with the giant robots flying down and what do you think because i think it looks so good i love the way the sentinels look in this comic cuba kicks ass throughout this he manages to make everybody look cool as shit like, this is... It looks great. And I also really want to praise uh, Isenov's work on the colors. I think the colors are especially great. Oh, yeah. They do a lot to contribute throughout, I think. Like, in terms of the Sentinels, I'll note that, like, these are very much classic Sentinels. You know, they don't try and do a whole lot of reinvention design-wise. Like, they don't look literally like the original Jack Kirby ones. Was Kirby still on the book when they debuted the Sentinels? Uh, Kirby... So that first arc, he did the layouts and presumably designed the Sentinels, but someone else finished the arc. Okay. Yeah. Regardless, those, like, early 60s Sentinels maybe looked a bit sillier than these, but these are still very faithful to that classic design that, you know, has been fiddled with over time, but it's still the basic shtick of, like, here's the gigantic murder robots in pink and purple. Yeah, these <laughs> are the 90s ones. Yeah, very, like, 90s cartoon. They're so cool. With what you said about the coloration, I'll piggyback off of that in terms of... Eisenhoff just does such a good job of using different values and helping keep composition of pieces look wonderful, like the way that the energy beams that the Sentinels, like, shoot out or that come from their thrusters as they're flying are just, like, these really bright, wonderful, like, yellow and orange hues that pop really well against the rest of the art. They're awesome. But basically, we get the Sentinels descending upon an American city, and then we get a couple pages of Carnage, where they are blasting away. There's a couple panel sequence of one of them identifying a mutant and then stepping on him with a crunch sound effect. It sucks to be a mutant in a 1610 right from the get-go. It really does. Uh, listeners, 1610 is the Marvel Universe designation for, like, that Earth number, if you didn't know. Yeah, I'm obsessed with the Ultimate Universe at the moment, so... Yeah. And... Cubert makes the decision to have one of the victims of the Sentinels, like, eating a red, like, ice pop, like an otter pop or whatever. And so we get these little bits of, like, the squished ice pop 
that's like red and giving blood without showing us actual blood. It's really effective. And I really hope that dog moved before the sentinel put its foot down. Yeah. But essentially, this opening sequence is just pure murder. Like, pure, here's the sense that mutants are oppressed. They're not just sort of, you know, unknown by the public at large or maybe face some oppression. Like, we're opening up the Ultimate Universe with the point where mutants already are well enough known by baseline humans to be under threat of genocide by the government from the very get-go. Yeah, like, we're opening at the state-sanctioned genocide point. Like, this is kind of Days of Future Past, like, a little early in that timeline, but it's already further gone than it goes for more than a week and a half at a time in the, like, regular Marvel Universe. Like, in 616... I guess Operation Zero Tolerance is the one time it's gotten quite this bad on purpose by the government. And that's where we begin. Yeah, I think it's a effective decision in terms of, like, raising stakes. Or rather, just, like, beginning with the stakes super high already in it, a way to build tension. It does make Charles look like such an ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We will get to asshole Charles Xavier, because that is one character trait that remained the same in his reinvention. This one's openly worse. I'm not saying he is worse, but he's, like, much more open about being worse. Oh, yeah. But before we quite get to that, after the Sentinel murder spree, we get two pages of television newscasts. Starting with a reporter talking about the Sentinel attack that's just happened. Just giving us sorts of exposition about anti-mutant sentiment. About the president backing the Sentinel program. Good old GW. Yes, this is a George W. Bush era comic. We will get various references throughout specifically calling him the Texan. And there's some panels where he's drawn and it's like... That's not just a generic president, that's George W. Bush. Well, it gets better in Ultimates when George W. Bush is just on-panel, photo-referenced images, uh, which is in continuity of this. This is George W. Bush. This is George W. Bush, and he is approving the Sentinel program. Not surprising. Yeah, not surprising at all. It also notes that the program is partially in response to mutant terrorist attacks upon human cities. We're specifically opening with Magneto and his Brotherhood of Mutants already being known entities operating in this universe. So we then get sort of like a transition to... A recording of one of Magneto's speeches to the human world in which he says, Man is a parasite upon mutant resources. He eats our food, breathes our air, and occupies land which evolution intended Homo superior to inherit. Naturally, our attacks upon your power bases will continue until you deliver this world to its rightful owners but your replacements grow impatient. 
we're going to keep talking a lot about just how much they pack into these issues. And I think one of the biggest signs that they were just going for it was that they said, we're going to pack both Magneto and the Sentinels into our opening arc. Like, both of what I would say are the two main X-Men antagonists right off the bat at the same time. This would be a great X-Men movie. That feels like what they're doing. Yeah, it feels very cinematic in a lot of ways. Like, this is like, if you watch that X-Men movie and you're like, okay, what's the things that are missing from this movie? Kind of the first thing you say, especially when you watch any of those first three is, where the hell are the Sentinels? Yeah. I have to assume it was probably like some degree of like an aesthetic or a budget concern of them being like, how are we going to make the silly purple robots look good? But the Sentinels are so pivotal. I See, my argument is they inherently look good. Yeah, I agree. I'm just like trying to put myself in the mindset of a 2001 studio executive and it wouldn't surprise me if it was something like that. As a big Dalek fan, I've always thought that it doesn't matter how silly looking the robot is, you can still make it scary. Yeah. <laughs> the news broadcasts also make brief mention of Bolivar Trask, who I mentioned just because specifically in both this and mainline continuity, he is the chief design head behind Sentinels. I had forgotten about this because Trask comes up in a big way in Ultimate Spider-Man. And it's completely divorced from anything to do with the Sentinels. And I had assumed that his job had been given to someone else in these comics. But no, he's just in both. He's just in both, yeah. Although he's not really a major figure here, but he is still name-dropped. And on the news, it is specifically mentioned that this attack at the opening of the issue, which here it's said that specifically took place in Los Angeles was only the beginning, and I'll quote, My colleagues and I estimate that every mutant hiding in the United States will be detained within the next six to eight weeks. Detained? They stepped on him. Yeah. Detained and or dead. <laughs> These assholes. And it's after this point that we transition to a character, specifically Beast, watching the news in a bar. And this is sort of our transition from the opening Sentinel attack and exposition into a grand old gather up the team montage that essentially gives giant size X-Men number one vibes of here's a couple pages in which we get all of our main characters together but instead of Professor X going around the world and being racially insensitive to everyone he can find, we get Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, going around and collecting various mutants to join the X-Men, establishing herself as, I would say, like, a funny, flirtatious, very competent telepath who just, like, freely uses her powers, like, fooling humans, doing mind control sort of stuff. There is one point where 
she is holding a blockbuster membership card and makes the police think it's some sort of like federal agent identification. What do you think of Ultimate Jean Grey? I think it's a pretty good reinvention of the character. I think the comic's too hot for her, given how young they make her. And I think that Wolverine needs to stay the fuck away from her. My perception of Ultimate Jean Grey has always been coloured by the issue of Ultimate Spider-Man, where there is a three-page sequence that is a joke about how Spider-Man can't stop thinking about her tits. And so I've always been vaguely annoyed by her, but I don't think it's the fault of this comic. Yeah, it's like... I'll specify, Jean Grey is 19 in these issues, so she is both technically legal and also still a teenager. She's pushing it. Yeah. We're pushing it. We're pushing it, and... Could have made a 21. That feels less weird than you, at least she could go have a drink. Yeah, but as is, there's a lot I like about this Jean. I think she's funny, I think she's quite cool. I think the main issues would just be A, the Wolverine of it all, which is more about Wolverine than Jean, but we'll get to the Wolverine of it all in just a similar vibe as to what happened in Ultimate Spider-Man. And then B, in terms of the Ultimate X-Men costumes, the girls have it the worst because it's just plainly like, oh, here's a sexy girl with her midriff out and, like, these pants that have gigantic cutouts that leave only, like, a third of the leg covered and just skin, skin, skin. And I'm not saying that comic book characters can't or even necessarily shouldn't be sexy, but the Ultimate X women uniforms always just looked kind of stupid to me. I don't know, what do you think? I think it's weird because Charles explicitly put them in that, and also both characters are like 19, because the other one is Storm, and she's also significantly younger than she is in the mainline continuity. I think she's meant to be exactly the same age as Jean. And I'm like, if this was two grown women choosing to wear this outfit, but you've taken two teenagers and you have this guy put them in the outfit, and the outfits are explained as being functional, and I'm like, so why does this function as well when there's less outfit? Yeah, because the men's naturally do not have anywhere near as much skin showing. Yeah, like they're all sort of short-sleeved, which I like. I like the cut of the male outfits. But like, as a counterpoint, Jean in New X-Men, which is same time as this, is wearing a turtleneck and a trench coat and looks rather than she's looked basically at any other time where she wasn't just Phoenix. New X-Men Jean is my favorite Jean aesthetically, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's that and the original Phoenix outfits are the two coolest things she's ever worn. And like, right now is a close third. When you say right now, do you mean, what do you mean? I I mean, like her post-Hellfire Gala X-Men outfit, the one that's inspired by a Hellfire Gala outfit. Okay, now I know the one you're talking about, right? Yeah, I I like it. I think it's a good, like, blend of Phoenix and the, like, original color scheme and the 90s outfit that I hate. That 90s outfit, (laughs) but yeah. Like, it's a good version of that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Back to Ultimate X-Men. The first character that Jean 
rescues is Beast, who essentially had been watching the news coverage in a bar when one of the patrons, you know, wanted to get in a fight with him and attacked him. And the bar's owner tells Beast to get out, even though he didn't start anything. And when I say tells Beast to get out, what I mean is threatens him with a shotgun and tells him to get the fuck out. And as Beast is walking out, a Marvel Girl shows up to talk to him. And when he asks her who she is, she says, The best thing that's happened to you since they started doing Reebok in a size 42. Yeah, this beast design is odd in that I am surprised that they didn't just make him blue and furry from the start. They've done the thing where he looks like he does in the original 60s comics, where he's got the big hands and feet. And I know, I, if I remember correctly, by the end of, like, volume three, he's blue and furry. By the end of this volume, he's got blue hair. Yeah, it's like, towards the end of this volume, he, like, starts turning blue... I don't remember exactly how long it takes to complete, but you're right, it can't take very long. I suppose it is kind of surprising that they didn't choose just to streamline it and just have him blue from the beginning and just be like, this is his mutation, like Nightcrawler. But for now, it's giving very faithful to the original 60s, sort of. He's not blue yet, he's just ultra big and bulky with the size 42 Reebok shoes. It's, like, they streamline a lot of other things. Like, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver just know Magneto's their dad and were raised by him, which isn't the case in the original comics. I'm like, there's, like, a lot of fucking around in the original comics to get Beast to be blue and furry. I, you think he would just open with the one that's stuck. So it's just a strange choice to me. It's It's a good design. Yeah, I don't think it's, like, a bad thing, but it is kind of surprising. I do also appreciate Jean's humor here. And after Beast, we transition to essentially the scene I was getting at before of her going to a police station and pulling the mentally persuading the cop that my blockbuster card is an FBI agent thing. It does just say blockbuster video. It's I'm surprised they got away with that. I love hyper-specific cultural references like this and, like, things that date art in its time. Well, then you need to read as many Mark Millar comics as possible. I know it's actually pronounced Miller, but I keep calling him Millar. I don't know why. Okay, well, it's spelled A-R. I thought I was the one accidentally saying it incorrectly, but it is Miller. I, I'm 90% sure that it is Miller, but I just call him Mark Millar. Okay. He's also Scottish. I'm allowed to make fun of him. Okay. <laughs> Essentially, she uses her mental abilities to trick the cop into leading her towards the holding cells of the jail or the station or whatever this facility technically is, where she gets him to unlock the cell and this is Storm that she's recruiting and Storm at first asks her if she's another one of Magneto's lackeys because before this point Magneto and the Brotherhood have already talked to Storm and tried to get her to join and she didn't care to and Jean informs her that I'll quote 
you're working for the competition now. At which point we pivot again to New York, where we see a tall, beefy, strong Russian man. Who could this be? Taking part in some sort of mafia-esque exchange. And basically he gets double-crossed. He's just like, wait, aren't you going to give me time to count the money? And they're just like, no. And everyone starts trying to shoot him. Except we get the sequence of gunfire shooting down at him. And really dramatically lit Colossus as he transforms into a steel skin form. Bullets bouncing off of him and back at the shooter's. Looks cool as shit. Just like immediately clothes are shredded. Gigantic metal tits out. It's Colossus looking imposing as cool as fuck. Because he's just an all-time great X-Men design. It's a great introduction to this character as well. Yeah. And it's like making him look super imposing without him even fighting anyone. It's just like, oh shit. He's just standing there, like, slightly depressed. Yeah, because, like, once his attackers realize that they're never gonna harm him, the ones that survived without, like, ricocheting their own bullets back at themselves, I'll leave, and Colossus is just really sad because he's thinking that his cover's been blown. And Jean Grey shows up in the nick of time to tell him he's not alone and to welcome him to the X-Men. And at this point, we then transition to our first shot of the Xavier Institute in the Ultimate Universe, where Jean brings her new free recruits to meet Cyclops, and they all introduce themselves, go over their code names for the first time, Beast points out that his is kind of derogatory, implying that he did not choose it for himself, and that some rude asshole said, you're gonna be Beast. Yeah, Charles Xavier. He said, you big-footed bitch. Charles is mutant-phobic. Very. Like, that's the thing about Charles Xavier. He is one of the ultimate self-hating mutants. And he imposes that on everyone else. Yeah. And basically, in his introduction, Cyclops is very much sort of giving what one might expect from the movies or the 90s cartoon, the sort of cultural zeitgeist understanding of Cyclops at the time of being like, the competent, maybe slightly hard-ass, but not extremely so, leader. Stand down, Wolverine. Yeah. And... Cyclops and Jean start leading the rest of the team through the mansion to meet Charles Xavier, who naturally, before they even see him, starts talking to everyone in their minds, so it can have the obligatory, did someone just talk in my head, sort of moment, before they all meet him in this giant room that he refers to as a library, but doesn't have any books in it, because, as he says, his reading capacity is beyond his physical speed of turning the page. And now to read, he just reads the minds of writers. 
He just goes into their minds as they're working. And quote-unquote, you would be surprised how many good ideas never made it to the printed page. Good old personal boundary violating Professor X. He can't even read a book without being an asshole. He also has a cat. It's a very cute cat. I think the cat's Mystique. That would be fun. I'm pretty sure the cat is, like, called Mystique. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, like, my, like, volume 8 or so of Ultimate X-Men, and it's tricky. It's been a while. Yeah. Although I've read really far in Ultimate X-Men, it's probably been, like, five years since I read Beyond this opening arc. So I don't remember well. Although now that you mention it, for all the shit they throw in so early... They kind of take a shockingly large amount of time to get to Mystique in the Ultimates, considering she's in the first fucking movie. It's weird that they don't make her Magneto's lackey, which is, like, not a Mystique thing from the comics, and it's kind of weird that the movies did that. But considering Millar was mostly basing this on the movie, I'm, like, weird that they're not here, but I guess because he wanted to focus on, um, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who we'll see later. Yeah. Essentially... Once they show up and are talking to Charles in the library, Charles goes on a little bit of exposition for everybody, and he sort of explains that he has a history of Magneto. They used to be quote-unquote like brothers, which means that they were gay. If any X-Men writer didn't mean it that way, it was probably Mark Miller, but... Yes. <laughs> But it means that they were gay, and Charles helped Magneto build his mutant sanctuary in the fucking Savage Land. I love this so much. We're on issue one, and we're like, Savage Land. It's really cool, but it's also like, you really threw everything in here from the beginning. Like, listeners, if you're not familiar, the Savage Land is just... A lush jungle with dinosaurs in it in Antarctica. It's a wild, like, 60s sci-fi Marvel concept. It's where Kazar is from. Yeah. And it's just wild that they threw this in here. Like, because this story, nothing here is essential to the Savage Land. It didn't need to be here at all. But it's just, it's here. And I will say... That it visually looks very cool every time we see it because Kubert gets to have fun just putting dinosaurs and flying non-dinosaur reptiles. Pterosaurs, yeah. Pterosaurs in the backgrounds of panels and it always just looks lovely. So it's a fun aesthetic choice. I am deeply disappointed that Magneto's base isn't like guarded by T-Rexes, though. Yeah. You got a Savage Land base, you gotta use it. It's such a strange choice, and I don't even dislike it. I'm just like, Mark Miller, I guess, really said, let me look over what I know with the movie I saw, presumably do a little bit of scattered research, and go, oh, the Savage Land, I like that. I'll throw it in with everything else. He clearly had enough time to read, like, maybe through the Dark Phoenix saga, and then was just basing this all on that stuff. Yeah. And then, like, wiki-searching. Yeah. During this segment, we also get a panel, I'll mention, of 
Charles discussing Magneto and him having a falling out in which we see Charles with like some sort of long metal something just like puncturing his spine so quickly telling us that in this universe Magneto is the one who disabled him as opposed to the original continuity where he was disabled by an alien named Lucifer. So here's another example of them actually streamlining something for the Ultimates. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and it should have just always been Magneto. It's just a better story. The movies did it too, eventually. Yeah. Like, it feels like if they had known more solidly that Magneto would be, like, the one of the rogues gallery, that it probably would have just always been Magneto. Well, that, and then the idea that they used to be friends wasn't an idea until 1981? Something like that, yeah. Maybe just 1980 flat? When was X-Men 150? Before then, the pain was still too raw, and Charles didn't want to tell his students about it. But after that part of the explanation, Charles gets to explaining Cerebro works the same way it does in the movie and regular comics. If you've seen the movies, you know what Cerebro is. And um, Charles tells them that he's picked up a signal of another mutant in this newly gathered team's first mission together is going to be to go rescue Bobby Drake, who has run away from home because he's terrified of Sentinels attacking his home and, like, hurting his parents. And we then basically cut to the X-Team on the street in their new uniforms. It's stated that somehow these uniforms mask them from Sentinel detection. So long as the Sentinels don't look at Jean Grey's midriff. Yeah. Just so weird. But, again, just, like, sleek, early 2000s. They look great. They do mostly look pretty great, yeah. I love any X-Men costume with just, like, a ridiculously, like, hot and sweaty coat over top of it. And... It's not the Quietly designs, but this is the second best black leather X-Men outfits after the Quietly designs, and still miles better than the movie version. They're quite nice, yeah. And it doesn't take long before the Sentinels arrive on the scene and the characters start enacting the rescue mission. Beast helps get Bobby out of the bus that he's in before the Sentinel can destroy it. And basically we just get a lot of the characters trying to work together for the first time. We get the plot point that Storm in the Ultimate Universe is much younger and much less experienced because essentially she can't control her powers. Here she uses lightning to strike down multiple sentinels at once, but then she faints on the sidewalk. So it's a very odd take on Storm, or at least I should say a very different take on Storm I don't remember Beyond this arc well enough to know if I had any real thoughts on the take on the character after this. But in terms of issues 1 through 6, 
Ultimate Storm doesn't really give any of what makes Mainline Storm so notable. You know, she's just kind of like, she's a runaway, she doesn't have good control of her powers. There's no mention or sense that she's ever had the sort of goddess period of her life. She's just kind of a runaway teenager trying to do her best and avoid the police, but having trouble controlling her powers. What do you think of Ultimate Storm? It reads like Mark Millar, sort of when he decided to make a lot of the characters much younger for this, um, was like, okay, well, what did Storm do while she was younger and read about her being the pickpocket in Cairo? And this is Storm essentially from the period where she's a pickpocket in Cairo. Like, this is... I don't hate it, but I also don't love it because I love Storm. And this is sort of one facet of Storm and not any of the others. There's not enough here. Like, she's not better than original Storm, but I don't know if you ever could be. Yeah. And we talked a bit before starting recording about how, with how much is going on in these issues, we by and large don't get much of an introduction to any character as an individual in terms of really establishing them. We're still in issue one. Yeah, I think that, like, of all the X-Men characters introduced here, Storm might get the most raw deal in terms of me just feeling like I really don't know what idea Miller had for her, if he really did, even. She kind of feels like she's here because Storm has to be here. Sort of like how she does in the movies, which is also, I'm like, yeah, I can tell you watched the movies. Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of like, we know this character is incredibly iconic and is mandated to be here, and we're not really putting any effort into showcasing her in any real way, so it's just, like, nobody is winning here. That said, Millar manages to get more out of Cyclops in this than they did out of him in three X-Men films. So, like, he could have done something with Storm. Yeah. Yeah, Cyclops is pretty good here. We get just, like, a great sense of, like, him being the tactical leader in the field... And being, like, the experienced child soldier, basically, that he is, personality-wise, across these issues, will get sort of the tension of, like, that aspect of him, but also him being, like, very hard on himself and, like, anxious in a sort of, like, responsibility and weight of the world sort of way. I think he's out of the team, maybe the most immediately realized character, which I think works. I think it works. Yeah. I, I like Ultimate Cyclops. Having read these first six issues, I'm like, this is a perfectly fine version of this character, which has streamlined him from his whole deal. Yeah. Towards the end of the Sentinel fight, we also get a nice moment of Bobby, who doesn't yet have full control over his powers either, but he does manage to freeze a falling sentinel to stop it from falling on bystanders. And the thanks that he gets for that 
is just one of the random humans throwing a liquor bottle at his head and just busting his head open, which feels very much like a a gay Iceman experience. <laughs> Not that the character is out at this time, or that, again, Miller is thinking that. I doubt it. I don't know for sure. Ultimate Iceman is probably the straightest Iceman's ever been. Yeah. This just feels like such a... It just feels fitting. Yes. <laughs> From a, like, coded gay perspective of, like, here's a fucking bottle upside your head, bitch. But, yeah, we get just, like, the jeering crowd being, like, get the fuck out, freaks. Just reiterating how much humans hate them all. And at that point, we shift to Magneto's base in the Savage Land, and these delightful flying reptiles who I assume probably aren't very realistic. What do you think? For the time period in which this was written, they aren't... Oh, this was drawn. They aren't terrible. They should have fibers all over them. They should be fluffy rather than scaly. That's a mistake. But that is a mistake that is excusable given when this was done. They're fun. But yeah, we get the dinosaurs or the not dinosaurs. And we get Magneto talking to some of his Brotherhood members. Specifically here, we get to see that Toad, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver are among the ranks. And they talk about watching the news coverage of the X-Men's Battle of the Sentinels, knowing that they must be tied to Charles, because who else? And Magneto wants to eliminate Charles before, quote, he converts any other young mutants to his naive integrationist ideals. And Magneto is specifically going to recruit Wolverine to assassinate Charles Xavier, and the final splash page of Ultimate X-Men number one is of Wolverine in the Savage Land with his claws through an attacked and sliced up dinosaur with like its blood streaming into the river that they're in and just like nice lovely jungle trees and birds in the background. And yeah, we didn't already talk about the cover. The cover is Wolverine. And then we actually get him on the final page with the teaser of him working for Magneto. And that's how the issue wraps. How do you how do you think this works as a let me pick this up and be a new reader? And this is the introduction to the X-Men. Ultimate X-Men ran for a hundred issues, even though for most of it it wasn't that good. So clearly this worked. And overall, I quite like it. Yeah. The thing is, like, there's so much going on, but by and large, it doesn't bother me. It's like I look at it, and I'm just like, well, goddamn, that was ambitious, you know? And I'm kind of like, some of this seems like it's sort of going against the point of the line in terms of streamlining things and keeping it simple. But in terms of the actual comic before me... You could still hand this to someone who's not read this before, and they would just be like, oh, okay. 
Magneto made dinosaurs? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, even though there's so many elements going on, they're really effectively introduced and integrated with each other. You know, I think they do a pretty good job of, like, distilling these groups and concepts to their most base forms. You know, like, Sentinels, Dangerous and Tools of Human Supremacy. Check. Magneto, Alternative to Professor X. Check. You know, and even though we don't get, like, deep dives into most of the individual characters, we get, like, enough to know who they are for the opening moment, and... It all just feels quite exciting to me in terms of just, like, the pacing's pretty, like, breakneck. This is not the sort of comic where I would buy it, read it in two minutes, and be like, that wasn't worth the money. You know, like, I think they managed to make it feel like, oh, this was an actual complete issue of a story. And as we've said before... The art is very good, and it goes a long way towards just enhancing the overall experience. Before we go ahead and dive into more plot stuff from the subsequent issues, I want to go ahead and touch on art-wise. What do you think of the covers? These covers that basically, they're sort of doing like a widescreen TV feel of like every issue of an Ultimate book has a cover where, like, going down vertically on the sides is, like... The bars, yeah. That's the the ultimate thing. All of these original Ultimate series, they eventually dropped it, but I think up until the end of each of the three sort of mainline Ultimate books, uh, Spider-Man, X-Men, and Fantastic Four, they all do this, yeah. Um... I think it's an interesting choice. Like, I'm trying to think of it in terms of when you go to the store and you have, like, the wall of comics. It does make them stand out. Well, because they all have ultimate first. They'd all be, like, grouped together on the shelf. And you would have, like, your Spider-Man and your X-Men, your Fantastic Four sort of there. And they all have this really distinct... I don't hate it. I These covers are better than the ones for Spider-Man because most of the Spider-Man covers are just, here's a pin-up shot of Spider-Man. And at least these, there's sort of enough characters where they can kind of do something different with each cover. It feels less repetitive. Yeah, whenever I've, like, looked at the Ultimate Spider-Man trades, I've been like, these all look the exact same. It definitely helps to have way more characters in the cast here. Yeah, like, especially since Ultimate Spider-Man would be, here's seven issues to cover the origin and, like, a fight with Green Goblin. So you get until, like, issue six for you to even have Green Goblin to put on the cover. I mean, technically, Spider-Man isn't in the comic for the first, like, four issues. So, yeah, it's just very, it's a very different... This, um, yeah, I, I, none of these covers stand out to me as, like, oh, that's a great cover. But certainly the cover for number one is pretty iconic. And I think, generally speaking, they are solid covers. Yeah, it's like, if nothing else, they are instantly recognizable covers where, you know, if I flip through a box of stuff, I see it, I instantly know, like, what era and line we're talking about. So it's a very, like, successful graphic design choice in terms of just, like, identifying what these are, even if... Like, the individual art pieces aren't bad, but most of them 
on these don't especially stand out for me either. I think the bars maybe limit some of the compositional choices you can make to a slight extent, but I think that it was a good idea to have them. Yeah, I think I agree. It's certainly better than, like, the Civil War covers where, like, half the cover is just the text. Like, in terms of limiting what you can do with the artwork on the page, I think this is a pretty good one. Yeah. God, those Civil War covers. Yeah. (laughs) Just screaming, like, they just come across as, like, begging to be considered prestige and not just your normal comic book. It's serious. But... Another Mark Millar. One that I don't anticipate us talking about. Not unless we're doing a hate read. Yeah. But back to comics that are very cool. (laughs) Ultimate X-Men number two kicks off with Wolverine arriving in an airport, meeting up with a contact from the Brotherhood, and they get shot up. Because Weapon X is here to recollect Wolverine because, as if it wasn't enough, that we've already introduced the X-Men, all of their individual members, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Magneto, the Sentinels, and the Savage Land. We're introducing the Weapon X program in the first two issues as well. I'm shocked Krakoa isn't here somehow. Yeah. And essentially Wolverine and the Contact just get, like, mowed down with gunfire so that Weapon X is going to successfully capture Wolverine. In the meantime, we get some short scenes of the newly formed X-Men team interacting with each other, talking amongst themselves, giving us little brief character bits to help flush them out. We get, like, Jean talking to Hank. We get Hank's penchant. For, like technology and being the smart one as he's like working on the blackbird repairs and we get sort of our earliest little seeds of who are going to be the romantically interested pairs in the series or triangles we get like beast being surprised that gene and cyclops aren't together Because Scott is clearly into her, but he doesn't have the nerve to actually ask her out. We have Jean picking up on the fact that Beast is in the Storm, but Storm is into Colossus, who is not into anyone here. Because as we'll find out later in issues not actually covered today, Ultimate Colossus is gay. And just a little bit of interpersonal dynamics before Professor X summons the X-Men and tells them that he's detected the infamous mutant assassin Wolverine and their mission is going to be to go try and rescue him from government forces. And we basically get a sequence of the Weapon X goons torturing him, shooting him all over, Talking about all the fun they used to have, setting him on fire and shit. Weapon X is fucked up. Weapon X is fucked up. Absolutely crazy, but Weapon X gets introduced in this as well. It's like Colonel John Rafe. I remembered that Weapon X was the second arc of this series. Like, that there is, like, more Weapon X focus there, and I was already in my head, like, that's super early. And then when I reread these issues, I was like... 
and they're here this early already before that even but yeah wolverine's been captured the x-men show up they free him beat the shit have some weapon x goons but specifically don't kill them because there's a whole bit talking to wolverine where gene does the whole sort of like no matter what they did to you, if you kill them, you're just proving to humans that they're right about us. Blah, 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 blah. All that sort of shit. And Wolverine's just like, don't give a fuck. Understandably, why should he give a fuck? And... They whitewashed John Rafe. Is John Rafe a character from the original Weapon X stuff? Yep. And he's a black dude in the original stuff. Is he... What's he from? Is he from the... Larry Homer, apparently. Okay. I don't know Wolverine stuff enough, but I was just like, you know, I do know him from somewhere. Other than this. I don't know when I would have seen him, though. Oh, my God. He's in X-Men Origins Wolverine. The movie? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's where I'm recognizing the name from. Yeah, it was Will I Am. When I think about Weapon X guys... Half the time, I think about fucking quote-unquote Colonel Stryker from how the movies made the God Loves Man Kills guy into the Weapon X guy and just combined them for no reason. I mean, it really streamlined the plot of that movie. I think it was a great decision. Um, As much as making him an American military guy instead of a preacher, I think, does like work against the themes of the story they were adapting to an extent. Not, like, that much, but a bit. Takes away some of the specific sort of, like, religion as hatred outlet of it all. Well, especially since they don't characterize him as especially religious in the film. I think you could have counted that again if you had him being a very, like, vocally religious military leader. But they don't do that. Yeah. But anyway, Jean Grey basically threatens Logan, tells him not to make her hurt him. And he's just like, well, what the fuck are you going to do to me? At which point she telekinetically lifts him up and slams him head first into the side of a cliff, knocking him out cold. Because <laughs> Ultimate Jean Grey is a badass from the go. God, my feelings on Ultimate Jean Grey are just so mixed. Because she gets really cool shit like that, but also there is everything else of Ultimate Jean Grey. Like, she's really cool, but also she's absolutely there to get jerked off to. And it's just, like, impossible to ignore that. So it's just such a weird mixture of things going on. Yeah. But, yeah, the X-Men succeed. They manage to extract Wolverine. And the issue basically ends with a little meeting of Magneto and his brotherhood. We get a bit of a closer look at Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, and Magneto just alludes to them having pressing matters to attend to, and we end on, like, a little hologram feed of the White House foreshadowing what Magneto and them are going to be up to in the coming issues. And you are currently holding up one of the ads, because I have these physically for... The DVD and VHS release of the 2000 X-Men movie. Because these comics came out when VHSs were still made. I kind of miss VHSs. Yeah. The little boxy container is a lot nicer than 
most Blu-ray sets these days, just by default. Yeah, DVD Blu-ray cases just don't really look nice to me. I keep mine in a drawer. Yeah. There is something nice about just, like, the paper slip cover and, like, design of a VHS. And also, they're from when I was a child, so therefore there's nostalgia. And I have no reason to back it up, but anything from this period is heavily imprinted on me, hence why we're talking about Ultimate X-Men today. <laughs> Moving forward into issue three... We basically open up with a little bit of team talk again. Although we don't get like extended character moments in this opening arc, I feel like a lot of the personality gets packed into these sort of in-between scenes of just like members of the team chit-chatting. Like here they're just talking about the horror of the Sentinel patrols and... Their feelings on the school, Colossus specifically, saying, It's fun being around people where I don't have to keep up that lame homo sapien pretense. And just sort of everyone adjusting to their new lives. As they're walking around, we see, like, die, muty scum, graffiti written across buildings, giving more, like, mutant prejudice information just in the backgrounds of panels we get a sequence of wolverine in the danger room where he's supposed to be fighting the like holographic versions of his teammates but he's fully gutting them again just reminding us something's not right here of wolverine and shortly thereafter the x-men catch the news that in retaliation to the Sentinel program, Magneto and the Brotherhood have kidnapped the president's daughter and essentially said that the next time a Sentinel kills a mutant, Magneto specifically says, 113 mutants have been murdered by the Sentinels in an effort by your president to halt evolution. But their next mutant kill shall be followed by the execution of his foul-mouthed female calf. This is my one and only warning. I have nothing more to say. I love how Magneto has written in these. Just really consistent, strong personality. No time for bullshit. The fucking female calf line. It's selling, like, full villainous, murderous Magneto. And it's just sort of like fun supervillain dialogue. What a way to talk about Jenna Bush. Jenna Bush. Maybe Barbara Bush, but I think this one's blonde, so Jenna. Yeah. And Professor X essentially is going to send the X-Men on a mission to rescue her. And a lot of them are just kind of like, why? <laughs> Because the fact that this tactic has worked and the government isn't currently sending more sentinels out has things in a state where they're not necessarily gunning to immediately change that. But Professor X does his whole integrationist, like, the only permanent solution is one of peace. We have to show how good we are and that we can coexist, blah, 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 blah. And the X-Men 
kind of go along with it and have misgivings, but they do embark on the mission, which takes them to Croatia, where we get our first extended battle between the X-Men and the Brotherhood of Mutants in the operation to try and save the president's daughter. While I'm looking at this page, I'll go ahead and ask, because we get the shot of them flying there in the Blackbird. What do you think of the Ultimate Blackbird's design? I like the Stealth Bomber vibes. Yeah, it's like very sleek and like all black and just looks very cool to me. The Tron lines are interesting because they actually feel a little ahead of their time. Because that Tron line thing was such a thing when Tron Legacy came out. Like, even Spider-Man got a Tron suit when that movie came out. And, like, for some reason these guys have a Tron plane. Yeah. But I like it. It looks nice and sleek and cool. It looks pretty notably different from the movie version of a Blackbird. Which which... was just the Blackbird, yeah. Yeah, this is more of an actual reinvention of it. It's pretty neat. This is someone who doesn't know planes as well as Chris Claremont writing it. Yeah. Because Claremont did the Blackbird because he thought the Blackbird was cool. Yeah. And I think we can go ahead and take a minute to talk about this Brotherhood, which essentially consists of the original 60s Brotherhood members like the OG OGs and then the couple members that got added shortly thereafter. We see... I think this is just the OGs. Well, Blob, maybe. Yeah, I think Blob technically joined, like, really quickly after. But we essentially have Quicksilver, the Scarlet Witch, Toad, Mastermind, and Blob. What do you think of the Ultimate Brotherhood? They're fine. I mean, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch get the most page time, and they're the most interesting characters, definitely. Um, Like, we spend a lot of time with their daddy issues. We spend more time on them than we spend on several members of the X-Men, actually, by the time you get to the end of this first arc. The Toad redesign is very film-inspired, but, like, pushes it further because it's a comic. And I like that. I like when Toad looks like a little weirdo, because it is kind of weird. That for so many years, he was just an ordinary-looking dude who could hop. Uh, I don't like Blob, but me liking Blob in literally anything pre, uh, right before Krakoa. Like, I think Age of X-Men is where Blob starts being a character I like. I don't think there's a single instance of the character before that that treats him remotely like a human, so... Yeah, um, this is just continuing that trend... Um, and Mastermind's barely here, like, he barely even appears front and center in a panel, never mind, like, does anything especially, but, like, it's cool that he's here, that we're establishing that these people are around. Um, I do like that, again, they've made the majority of the Brotherhood sans Mastermind kind of a bit younger and closer in age to the younger of the X-Men. That was a good idea, makes them more peers. Yeah... This take on the team, they don't really have enough page time for me to be like, yeah, I love this Brotherhood, but I think it's like effective enough introduction, you know, we get the gist, we get to see them. It's an interesting choice to sort of lean more into the classic version of the team rather than trying to directly mirror the movie version, 
you know, as we talked about earlier, Mystique's not here and neither is Sabretooth. And it's kind of interesting that they didn't choose to go more movie synergistic. I don't think that's necessarily a con. It's just maybe a little surprising. In terms of this roster, Toad is definitely, I think, the most different from his original counterpart. Because as you said, this is like the radical redesign with like the green skin and the webbed feet and the looking less like a baseline human, which I think... Yeah, I think, like, this and the movie are really the origin of that. Because, like, the movie has some of that, but this takes it to such more of an extreme. The movie did the tongue. Like, it took 40 years for a guy named Toad to get a prehensile tongue. That's really wild. Um, the movie, it was uh, Ray Park who played him. Same guy who did Darth Maul. So, you know, we love Ray Park. Yeah, I always thought that the movie Toad was very cool, honestly. Even though he gets taken out like the peon of peons, but... Look, what else is going to happen to something when it gets struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything everything else. else. (laughs) You know Joss Whedon wrote that line? Of course he did. Like, that is the main contribution of his draft of that script that was left in the final product. I'm like, of course it is. Of course. Kill me now. God. But, yeah, Ray Park Toad is cool. Um, Blob is just Blob. He's just the same thing the character always was until circa 2016. And then Quicksilver and Wanda, very close to their 616 versions... They are Magneto's kids. They know it from the get-go. I think the sort of relationship between Quicksilver and Magneto's fun, just the daddy issues. There's a part later where Cyclops has temporarily joined the Brotherhood. And That's Ma- my favorite page in this whole comic. Yeah, where Magneto's just like, and if you can, whenever Quicksilver's around, would you call me father? No, it's even better than that, because earlier in that same page, he's like, by the way, my daughter's going to try to seduce you later. So, you know, go get that, I guess. Yeah. He seems to want it to happen. I'm just like, damn. (laughs) Father of the year over here. He is an interesting father figure. And like you said, Mastermind's barely here. I think he masterminds at one point and does like a a thing but honestly i barely remember it yeah he does like a illusion of wherever people to like trick the cops with something and that's like the most he does is that one page there's never anything as memorable as lady jane gray so yeah the, the dark phoenix hallucinations he did to jean gray never does anything that cool so the main notable thing for me is that although he's a creep and maybe partially because he's a creep. 60s Mastermind looks really cool. He just has like that weird sort of cloak hood thing going on. Like he looks like he's supposed to be in the 1800s and he's out of place. Whereas Ultimate Mastermind is just a dude with a long ponytail. He's just a dude. I mean, I assume this is he's making himself look like that because like 
Mastermind, when he shows up as Jason Wingard, always looks super handsome, and the whole point is that, like, the 60s version is what he really looks like, and he's just, like, using his powers to look different. I think that Mastermind is a much more memorable character when you do that, and maybe this comic should have made that clear at some point, because I'm just going to assume that's what's happening. Sure. I don't know why you would ever do Mastermind a different way, unless you're X-Men 2. Oh, God, that's... That's a whole thing. Yeah, I forgot about that for a moment. Where they make Mastermind Strikers like Mutant Kid. That was a that was a good adaptation of that character, actually. I feel like they used him pretty well there. That was really cool, yeah. Like, those sequences are great. Um, that movie just works. I really hate that it works as well as it does. Find the mutants. Find them. All of them. Find the mutants. Yeah! Like, all of that's just so good! <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, it's the sort of thing where it's like, basically has nothing to do with the comic character, but I don't care because it's just cool. It's like movie mystique. It's the power set, and it's used really well, and I mean, it looks really cool. Um, Yeah, it's weird that they've never used him with Gene in either of their two Dark Phoenix adaptations. They always try and do something else with it. I'm like, but the whole reason she goes nuts is because Mastermind's been fucking with her for weeks. I feel like they probably, or this is just speculation, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were reticent about touching on any of the sort of, like, implied sex abuse aspect of it, or really diving into, like, full creep Mastermind. But that's the only way to make that story work. It's the only way it's good. Like unfortunately but otherwise you just watch it and you're like well it makes no sense that she's just gone randomly evil anyway because if you don't do that it becomes oh no this woman has too much power and must be stopped but we should move on <laughs> yeah my last note is that although it doesn't have the full gene gray thing going on here we do have a brief interaction of him like trying to mack on wanda and her telling him off which is nice Oh, he's he's always a creep. Yeah. Even when he only has free panels cumulative, we do get him being a creep. Anyway, Brotherhood's chillin', they're guarding the president's daughter, the X-Men show up and break her out, and we get the fight sequence, which involves a lot of everybody whooping Quicksilver's ass, which is kind of fun. Like, we get... Because, like, Cyclops is taking the president's daughter driving her away in a car. Quicksilver steals the keys out, positions himself on the windshield, the outside of the windshield, and is just like, missing an engine, Cyclops? At which point Scott goes, missing a face moron, and shoots his blast through the windshield, cracking it and sending Quicksilver flying. I really love how much Quicksilver gets beat up on in these. <laughs> He gets his ass whooped because that happens. And then he's like running and just barely stops himself from getting impaled on Wolverine's claws around a corner. I can't believe his dad nearly killed him. Yeah, I don't remember when that happens, that reveal or whatever the fuck. That is so fucking weird. Uh, I think in Ultimate 3, if you're listening, it is revealed that... Wolverine cut to Magneto and is actually the father of these of his kids but um that's not important and probably wasn't thought up here 
I just, I just find it so funny. Mostly because Wolverine then, like, watches Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch fuck, which, yes, they are an incestuous couple, and that is, starts to be implied in this run. It's all very funny to me. Honestly, when Millar's writing it, the Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch fucking each other stuff is really funny. It's once it becomes, like, an on-panel thing under Loeb, where it just becomes, like, it starts being, like, oh, that's so gross funny to, why the fuck is this comic about this now? Yeah. But anywho, the fight just goes on for a bit. People knock around Toad like a ping-pong ball. There's a final accumulation in which Wolverine takes Scott's place, driving the daughter away from danger, and sort of, like, runs the car off of a cliff in time to drop into the hangar of the X-Jet so that, like, Jean picks them up into safety within the plane as she's flying. And the president's daughter, like, says something about Wolverine trying to impress her. Well, that's... So Jean is, like, mentally saying that to Wolverine. Oh, yeah, you're right. I... Yeah, you're right. It's, a uh, Jean talking to Wolverine, saying... Have we talked about Wolverine's soul patch? No, let's talk about it. I just need to mention that he has a soul patch, and I'm like, of course, in the early 2000s, and you're reinventing Wolverine, of course he has a soul patch. He looks like shit. (laughs) It's just so prominent in this panel, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's there. Oh god. He looks like such a douchebag, which is fitting for Ultimate Wolverine. Oh, it's completely in character. Ultimate Wolverine would have a soul patch. Uh, as we're about to say, um, Ultimate Wolverine is a series of red flags in oh, a yeah. leather jacket. Oh, yeah. We get Gene saying, you do anything to impress a 17-year-old in a tight sweater, wouldn't you? Ew. To which Logan says, actually, I've kind of got my eye on a telepathic 19-year-old but I'm worried she's going to waste her life waiting on a loser who brushes his teeth six times a day. Don't give up hope, Wolverine. You never know your luck. Yep, the Gene-Wolverine flirtation is already going and progressing farther than the Scott-Gene dynamic. Um, and, like, I in 616, I'm fine with them. But, uh, she is 19 in this, and he is... Not 19. Yeah. He doesn't even seem to have the memory issues of 616 Wolverine. Like, this this guy is, you know, approaching 100 and he knows it. Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know how old Ultimate Wolverine is supposed to be. He's in World War II. Okay, so he's still old as shit. He's the first mutant. What? Because mutants are artificially created in World War II. See, you read Farver in the Ultimates than I did. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right before Ultimatum. That's that's why, like, that's, like, the last thing that ha- That's why, like, so Ultimatum ends with Cyclops telling Magneto, oh, by the way, we're not, like, the next step in evolution. We're, like, a fuck-up that humanity did one day. And then, like, vaporizes his head. But, yeah. My god. There you go. Um... I cannot remember how the fuck this explains Apocalypse, because Apocalypse is in Ultimate X-Men before that. And I do not remember what Apocalypse's deal was in that, but I'm pretty sure it was being the first mutant, so... Yeah. (laughs) 
I no idea. But yeah, no. Um, mutants are like some kind of airborne thing or whatever that infected people back in World War Two, and it's just an artificial like, yeah. Which I don't like as like a narrative. I think it weakens the mutant metaphor to have them be created somehow. Yeah. I think it's better if they just stop showing up. Yeah, it just... Like, I could see doing, like, a what-if issue with that sort of thing, but I think for just, you know, even reinventing the concept for this, I think it's just too central to the narrative to want to fuck with it like that. I'm glad that the new Disney thing just seems to be we're gonna just sort of start saying some characters are mutants and, like, not explaining them. Um... Because that's definitely the approach that I would take. It's just like, they should just start showing up. It's just like, better to do that than try and work your way out of a headache of trying to explain, why didn't we see them before? And just creating some convoluted thing that's a pain in the ass. Just, just go with it. It's, so like in the Ultimate Universe, it's because it ties them into Project Rebirth and like Captain America. Which, like, the part of the thing that sort of emerges post-Ultimates happening is everything in the Ultimate Universe comes from trying to recreate Captain America. That's, like, how Spider-Man happens, etc. So, like, I get it on that sense. But then, they, they, they're they still, like, aliens? And space gods? And I'm like, so not everything that's, like, comic booky comes from this one program. Like, it's not an alternate history in that sense. It's still a Marvel universe. Like, Thanos is, it still exists. And, like, he's not the result of someone trying to recreate Captain America. But, um, yeah. Yeah. But back to this comic, Wolverine's creeping on Jean. And, I don't know, it's like, I haven't read past this point in years, like I said. So I can't remember for sure how well the Wolverine of it all is handled. But in terms of what I remember and what's in these opening six issues, the Wolverine turning sides of it all, I don't believe at all. And like, it's mostly just a problem in terms of Wolverine being a protagonist that we're meant to, I don't know, I guess just accept as a figure that the team accepts staying on the team. You know, because it's like, because of how plot-driven this book is, it doesn't ever feel like it's devoting a shitload of time into what it's doing on a character level. And, like, I could give, like, oh, you know, Jean is a 19-year-old. Sometimes 19-year-olds don't make great decisions. So, like, her... I buy it from Jean's point of view. Yeah, exactly. But I'm mostly just, like... Yeah. yeah, the how does the Wolverine staying around play out after this? But anyway. I know there's an arc where he, like, tosses Cyclops into a hole in the Savage Land and leaves him for dead later that I can vaguely remember. And he's still on the team after that. There's that time he swaps bodies with Ultimate Spider-Man and then does something with Mary Jane that she then later asks Peter to not do again until they're older. Ultimate Spider-Man and Mary Jane are, uh, canonically 15. Ultimate Wolverine's a fucking creep. Yep. But... I don't know why he's allowed to be around all these people. All these minors. 
Yeah. Or, or I suppose most of them aren't mo- all of these like eighteen year olds, but anywho, Bobby, Bobby's sixteen. Yeah. Or Bobby's fifteen, or whatever it is. He's the same age as Ultimate Peter. Yeah. And anywho, once they've rescued the president's daughter, Magneto's plane touches down. Cyclops gives the order for everyone to get out of there. Time to retreat for safety. And we end with a cliffhanger page of Storm worrying that Beast is dead. Because in the midst of the fights and the explosions, Beast is buried under a flaming pile of rubble. And that is the cliffhanger to Ultimate X-Men number 3. Which Ultimate X-Men number 4 then essentially opens with the continued like extraction escape attempts as the X-Men are basically being threatened by the humans of this city who have caught on to mutants being around and are shooting them and it's a very tense dire like we've got to get the fuck out fuck sort of scene we get more of Storm struggling to use her powers while she's stressed just sort of like summoning sleets and just trying to do what she can, but she can't focus. It's not really working. And then we get a lovely moment where you have to take your physical comic and you have to turn it the other way than usual to get this like a vertical across the two pages shot of magneto dropping a train across this building and blowing shit up and it looks very cool i like a train flip i love magneto manipulating incredibly large objects magneto's always just like cool like his powers are the coolest charles always did want to build bridges yeah see even in that movie magneto has like several standout moments in that movie. It's Ian McKellen. <laughs> but that's true. Because between that and between the, the no needle will ever touch my skin again scene, I'm just like, oh yeah, why is Magneto really good in this movie that utterly ruins everyone else? Because he's the villain. He's just allowed to be himself and not get killed off screen, I guess. Gosh. He didn't have to go film Superman Returns. As someone who is now a Cyclops fan, I am so insulted by just how poorly all of the movies have handled Cyclops. And he is the only white male X-Man I want to see in these new movies. The only one. I don't care about any of the others. (laughs) I want Cyclops and then just all the women. Sure. To make up for all of the Fox movies that have just fucked over all of those characters. And by that I just mean Cyclops and all of the women. Sure, yeah. Essentially, Magneto drops the train, is not pleased with the X-Men, just gives them the line about them being treacherous little lapdogs and how their actions are not helping their people at large. And he says all of this and is questioning their choices and what they're doing in terms of human-mutant relations but he does not fight them, really. He just sort of turns and goes away. He, he, like, has a line about, like, 
I hope those sentinels that you're protecting kill you slowly, but he <laughs> leaves them to be got later while he and the Brotherhood go to go back about their own business. If you're gonna do this, like, comically evil Magneto approach, this is definitely the best way to do it. Like, this isn't how I'd write this character now, but around this time, you have this... And you have new X-Men. This is Magneto at, like, his most evil ever in comic history. At this, like, precise moment in time. Yeah. It's, like, mega supervillain Magneto. And he has, like, a touch of wit. It's, like, not full Ian McKellen. But he just does have fun dialogue with the way that he talks to the X-Men referring to George W. Bush's daughter as a cow in the most literal dehumanizing sense because it's mutant supremacist Magneto. He does see her as foodstuff. Yeah. And as the Brotherhood is leaving, we get more emphasis on Wolverine being a creep, where the rest of the Brotherhood is like, why didn't Wolverine help us? And Magneto's just like, if he hasn't killed Xavier yet, it's because he's trying to fuck someone first. <sighs> that someone being the Jean Grey, who we next see a bit later at the Xavier Institute with her and Xavier using their telepathy to acquire the skill of surgeons to try and patch up Beast to save his life while the rest of the team just sort of looks on and is very sad. Cyclops mentions that he tried to contact Beast's family to tell them what had happened and they wouldn't even take the call because mutants. And we get the line where they talk about how they're using an experimental surgery method that had not been used on humans yet, but had great results in animal trials and its only side effect was that it turned some monkey's hair blue. <laughs> this just is such a weirdly convoluted, like, way to get to Blue Beast, when he could have just been blue. Like, he could have just been Cat Beast from the start, which is where I would always want him to look. It is just really funny, blatant foreshadowing, though. It's so strange, because, like, like, how does a transplant make your hair... What's the relation? Truly nothing. Uh, then we get uh, my least favorite scene, where uh, Wolverine and Jean Grey are walking through the gardens of the Xavier Mansion, the kind of excessively pretty gardens, frankly. It's super pretty. We get, like, nice shots of, like, a curving walkway... With the architecture, a little pond, lots of greenery. We get some, like, birds in the pond. And again, the lovely coloration. It's quite nice. It's giving, like, actual, here's a nice, pretty, expensive private college. Uh, I feel bad for all of the gardeners that Xavier has mind-controlled into maintaining this. Yup. Um... And basically, Wolverine is like, how do you feel about me, Gene? And Gene's like, oh, I, I don't like you. I don't buy that you're into Xavier's integrationist ideology, which, like, yeah, I don't know why you are, frankly. Um, 
And she wishes that the X-Men had never met him because she feels weird and conflicted about him. And then he's just like, so how come you find me so attractive? At which point they start making out. And specifically, Wolverine has gotten her right across from Cyclops's. I suppose maybe not necessarily Cyclops' room. They're a thin view of a window to the mansion that Cyclops is looking through, watching them make out, and we get a shot of Wolverine glancing over his shoulder, like, smiling in a successful, possessive, I-got-your-woman way. Well, Gene is, like, kissing his neck. Yeah, which isn't the most upsetting panel of this sequence because again you know i buy all of this from gene while wolverine is acting disgusting and isn't likable i do think this is still well written you know like this is just what the character is but the panel that i still hate is after wolverine asks why she thinks he's so attractive and gene says i wish i knew with this panel of her lip fight the lip bite, like, eyes closed, close up on the face, lip bite, with the focus on the two front teeth looking like a squirrel or a chipmunk, and just the most revolting fucking image. I, it's the, the, the focus on how she's 19, but then also doing this with Soul Patch Wolverine. I just... They don't have- Wolverine doesn't betray the X-Men. Wolverine doesn't turn out to be, like- Wolverine, like, betrays Magneto. And it is so weird to me that we're meant to like this Wolverine, but he is like this. It's like, because it's been so long since I read Beyond This Point, part of me is like, are we supposed to like this Wolverine? I'm like, surely eventually I would think so, since it's fucking Wolverine. And he's in all hundred issues of this series. Yeah, but I'm just like, is this supposed to be a he'll get better? Are we just going to be supposed to like him regardless? You know, or is it like actually uh, this Wolverine is just despicable? Because like, you know, just reading what's here, it's like, this is well-written scenes of this god-awful man, but boy, do I hate him. <laughs> and specifically also, like, the, like, lip-bite panel is also one that just goes to that place of being, like, it feels like the audience is also meant to be into her at the moment where, you know, the creeper is into her and it's just... I'm not into it. Yeah. Weird vibes. Yeah. But... Ultimate Jean Grey just brings weird vibes everywhere she goes, because for some reason, every writer and artist just wants you to know how sexy this 19-year-old is. Yeah. And Cyclops watches this and decides, I'm out of here. So he goes Fair. down <laughs> to talk to Xavier. Me too. Uh-huh. And Xavier's been talking with, like, representatives from the White House. They're going to schedule a little meeting to encourage the nice mutant-human relations. And Xavier is smoking a pipe, which I love. Yeah, and he has that cat back in his arms, 
which is nice. I think it is Mystique. I cannot... I'm trying to remember. I think it's just the cat's name is Mystique, and then there is also Mystique, an entirely separate woman. That's fun. But, like, I'm pretty sure that, like, the cat's name was Mystique. Nice. Essentially what happens at this point is an exchange in which Cyclops and the Professor are arguing about proper strategy and approach to the sort of integrationist versus self-preservation of it all, the why should we strive to be liked by people who want to kill us all. Uh, Excuse me, oh my god. Um, Just the foundational question of is Professor X correct about anything? And as they're arguing, we get a moment where there's the visual signifier that Charles is using his powers to fuck with Scott's mind a little bit. Oh, he is. He even says he is. He openly admits to manipulating Scott's mind. Yeah, and it's like he acknowledges that he's doing something hormone-wise to calm Scott down, but it's also still giving the sense of, like, that's probably not all he's doing. And even though he's acknowledging fucking with it, I'm sure he's fucking with it beyond what he's even admitting. This Xavier is maybe even worse than regular Xavier. Because I could kind of believe regular Xavier most of the time when he says he's not fucking with your mind right now. This guy, assume that he is. He has no reservations about doing it. And he literally at one point says that if it weren't for Magneto's helmet, he would switch his brain off because he considers Magneto such a threat to human-mutant relations that he would just straight-up murder Magneto if it weren't for that helmet. I mean, this Magneto is a genocidal maniac who is the main villain of this entire universe in in as much fairness as I can give Xavier here, this Magneto is pretty out there. Sure, yeah. But, like, also, the current situation for mutants is so much worse than what it normally is. But I'm like, yeah, but even though this Magneto is like, uh, I want to keep humans as cattle and we could use them for food, um, (laughs) which is one hell of a position to have, I'm also like, okay, but, like, Charles, hanging out at the White House with the people who were, like, last week approving giant robots to just randomly murder anyone with an X gene that they came across is, like, also not a good decision? You're both fucking stupid? Yeah. And essentially, it ends with Cyclops walking out the door to leave... We don't know to what extent entirely what he was going to do anyway, and to what extent he's being manipulated by Charles still. And this scene is cut away by Hank waking up and going on the intercom to be like, Would someone like to join me in the infirmary and tell me why my hair's blue? (laughs) Because the hair on his head is turned blue. I just... Why wasn't he already just blue, guys? Come on. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, so we find out that Scott has gone to join Magneto, like we mentioned earlier. Which, frankly, I mean, so far Magneto has not been 
that unreasonable considering the situation. Like, he hasn't openly talked about using humans as livestock quite yet. So, like, I get it. Also, you've got two options. And one option just tried to manipulate your mind. And is clearly very happy to throw the 19-year-old woman you're, like, interested in to this jackass in order to get him to side with him. Like, yeah, Magneto does kind of seem like the better option from Scott's point of view right now. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And so the issue essentially concludes with Cyclops touching base into the Savage Land, tells Magneto that he's interested in hearing what he has to say, and the final line is, Welcome to the Savage Land, Brother Cyclops. And here we get a bunch of shots that show it's not just the Brotherhood in this location. This truly is some sort of safe ground base for at least dozens, probably at least hundreds of mutants because we just see large crowd shots. This is the closest we have to a Utopia or a Krakoa or a Genosha before it was genocided in this world. Yeah. On to, I think this is my favorite issue. Okay. Solely because of that one page that we talked about earlier, which is just the most amazing page of comics that I've seen all week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, issue number five opens with the Brotherhood committing another terrorist attack. Come back, IRA, all is forgiven. It's just, oh, wow. Uh, you can tell that this is uh, A, a comic written by a Brit, and B, a comic written by Mark Miller especially. <laughs> Yeah. No one else would make that joke. Is This is specifically Big Ben being blown up, right? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, the Brotherhood blow up Big Ben. Yeah. In London. Which, like, fair. It's kind of a dumb building. And they do the whole um, mastermind illusion as cops that I think we mentioned briefly earlier which is Mastermind's one moment of really doing anything. Cyclops is helping them out with the mission, although he's already butting heads like, you said you were going to give everyone this much time to evacuate before blowing it up, but you only gave them this much time. And it's giving, like, Cyclops already questioning the morals of the Brotherhood. They don't care. Um... Wanda is showing some interest in Scott. She's got her arm around him and is all over him. Yeah. The last time she'll be all over anyone other than uh, her brother. And maybe it's less of an alternative and maybe just trying to rope him into it. Because she's also being like, you'll have to forgive my brother's impatience. <laughs> because, you know, he's a super speedster. So it's very like, I'm into you and my brother is not so bad. You'll see. When he dicks you down like he dicks me down. <laughs> that is definitely a different three adjoined bedrooms uh, on the mutant island paradise. You don't know my brother like I do. Would you like to? <laughs> oh, oh my god. <laughs> That's what they're trying to do. Uh, and now just remember that this is Wolverine's daughter. <laughs> yeah. But anyway... Even as she's doing all this, he's just sort of grumbling. He is not happy. We then cut to Washington, D.C. 
in what I think is a hotel room where an actually... Based on its location, this is the Trump Hotel. Yeah. Or the building that eventually becomes the Trump Hotel, because you can see the Washington Monument, so it's, like, right on the mall. Yeah. And we it get... It looks like a Trump Hotel. It does. It looks gaudy as hell. And... And they had McDonald's. Literally McDonald's. <laughs> and a romantic tryst has actually happened successfully, because we get Wolverine in the bed in just his comic code mandated shorts and then Jean in a post-sex robe which before we get to that i will note these comics are comics code authority approved the seal is still on the cover i forgot how late that shit lasted these are some of the last comics code authority comics that marvel ever did they don't act like it literally the code meant jack shit at this point like what the fuck were they going to not approve uh at this point it was just habit yeah i'm shocked there aren't as many slurs in this as i uh thought there would be specifically there are a couple points where like the term like pansy or sissy is thrown around so it's sort of like like it is homophobic but very but like in the slight way of being like like it's not like saying fag but you know like there are a few moments like that but they never go like eric cartman i'm surprised you went in a whole six issues about the oslo dropping that's kind of shocking yeah yeah actually that is pretty fucking surprising which like i know it's used maybe once or twice in ultimate spider-man unfortunately I mean, like, there's the obvious defense of, well, I mean, that was the language at the time, which it was, but also, like, damn, does that age poorly. Um, but this being a Malar book, I'm like, wow, surprisingly restrained on the slurs here. Yeah, he had too many plot points to work in. He didn't have time to oh, yeah. <laughs> set up Wolverine inevitably being the one to call one of the other X-Men that... I'm sure if we had more just character interactions, there would have been a, like, slim Summers, slim, tiny dick, whatever sort of moment. But anyway, Jean and Wolverine have clearly just had sex. And Ew. then we, like, cut the scene with them getting back literally under the covers as, like, a scene transition because that's what people do. They literally lift the covers over their heads. I, I mean, yeah, that's that's what you're supposed to do. Meanwhile, all the rest of the X-Men have gone to meet the president. Wolverine and Jean are just too busy having sex, but everyone else has gone to attend. And we get a really George W. Bush face on George W. Bush. So the thing about this is their sex is so irresponsible because you think the two ones gw would want to meet are the two who literally were like the ones who actually saved his daughter which is wolverine driving the car and gene catching it with the plane i imagine but we never get a beat where like charles is pissed at them for not being here maybe it's partially intentional because i can see the pr of it all of being like this is wolverine <laughs> of yeah of like even if they don't know who he is wolverine's not gonna behave so, Charles is just like, keep Wolverine busy, Gene, and she's like, okay. Honestly, I guess that's what it is, is he's like, keep her, well, is he's like, keep him away, and Gene's like, I sure will, and 
they pay for a big expensive hotel room on Xavier's credit card. But the ex- Trump Hotel. Yeah. I don't think it's the Trump Hotel anymore. I think it got bought out again. But I have been there and I've held my middle finger up to that sign. Yeah. Essentially, the president and the American government officials tell Xavier that they've located the Savage Land's whereabouts. And basically, they're preparing to launch an attack on it. And... The last time they're going to use the Sentinels is to destroy the Savage Land. Yup. And, you know, everyone's kind of worried because they're like, Cyclops is there. And Professor X is just like, you're provoking them. That's not smart. And Bush is just like, it's a chance we'll just have to take. And we then get another two-page spread of Sentinels this time, not flying down, but lifting up. Bursting like, out of the ground. I'm like, where the fuck with these facilities are you having to do this? But it looks fucking cool. Yeah, it looks awesome. Like, a sentinel face just jutting out. The ground exploding around it. A million beams of, like, orange bright lights from their thrusters on their feet ascending into the sky. Again, just sort of like bringing back the opening of the series conveyance of just the sheer might and danger of the Sentinels and the sheer number of them. I think it just works very well. It is very cool. I love the Ultimate Sentinels. Meanwhile, back in the Savage Land, Cyclops is talking to Magneto about just how not happy he is and just about his concerns with the ethics of killing and Magneto's just like, you don't kill anyone. Quicksilver does. Quicksilver's the one who detonates the bombs. You're not killing anyone. <laughs> and he has a moment where he says, Man is alone among the animals when it comes to taking pleasure in the suffering of others. Homo superior loves all things. Which, a lie on many levels. As he's feeding a little dino raptor thing it's a pteranodon a pteranodon that's like perched on magneto's wrist and that's fun oh well actually uh see i want to call it a young ornithocyrus because of the head crest but that species isn't actually called ornithocyrus anymore and i cannot remember the name now but at the time they would have called this an ornithocyrus yeah tropeognathus maybe oh i don't remember it's from brazil and it was in Walking with Dinosaurs, and it's a really cool species. But this, this is a very small one, so. so. Scott's actually crying about the people being scraped off the walls in London. Yeah, he's really upset about the death. And Magneto does the whole, like, big picture, important trade-off sort of thing. He says, Even the best of us must do abhorrent things in the pursuit of the greater good sometimes. This world is more than 5 billion years old, and yet in just 200 years, Homo sapiens has created an environment which will only sustain us for another few decades. They invented war. They write manuals on torture. Every living relative I had in the world was either gassed, shot, or roasted alive in one of their periodic genocides. And this is the first and I think only mention in these issues of Magneto's Holocaust background 
as in the panel, like within his cape, we get an image of Holocaust inmates like behind a barbed fence. See, I had it in my head before I reread these that this version of Magneto wasn't even a Holocaust survivor. I seem to remember him actually definitively not being one. And so now I'm very confused. Yeah, I don't remember the series beyond this point well, like I've said. But at least in terms of what we get here, it's, you know, it's just not pivotally important to the character in the way that it is to normal continuity Magneto, so it would be very easy to forget. Yeah, this Magneto's, like, his evil is not born out of the trauma of this. This is an ideological, like, he has sat down and thought about evolution a bunch and decided he knows what's up. And that's why he sees humans as a little better than animals. He's like, well, we're higher on the evolutionary chain than them. Like, that's not how evolution works, you dumbass. Yeah, and it's that sort of just, like, speciesist thing of, like, you know, if you view mutants as a separate species, then there's the species loyalty of, like, your own other-others sort of thing. And then just, like, all the genocidal rhetoric that he's had throughout of just, like, you know, literally referring to humans as using mutant resources and things like that. I love him saying that um, his family was murdered in a genocide, which, like, given his age and ethnicity, you immediately should know which genocide it was. And then the next thing Scott does is say, hey, you sound just like Hitler. And I'm like, Scott, I get being pissed at this man, but that feels a bit below the belt. To which Magneto not caught surprise at all like unbothered says actually he was one of theirs scott which true but also like that's not how it works eric yeah <laughs> this eric not you eric <laughs> yeah um <laughs> my favorite fictional character who i share a name with easily magneto what other erics are there eric cartman <laughs> Like, those are the two <laughs> pop culture Eric's. Like, those oh are the God. big ones. Oh, well, his real name isn't even Eric for Magneto. I'll take it, though. It's the best I have. Uh, it, it's the name he used the longest. You like... It's the one he used when he married Xavier. Like, it feels like the one that is his true name in terms of just how much it's been used. Yeah, well, because the Max is very recent. Yeah, and then it's like, Magnus is, like, also up there, but feels, like, Dumb. extra... It, it, like, it feels, like, extra intimate whenever, like, Charles calls him that. It's like, oh. <laughs> it, well, that feels like a nickname for Magneto. It's like, what's Magneto's pet name? It's Magnus. What's Magneto's real name? It's Eric. <laughs> yeah, and basically the conversation ends with... Magneto saying that it's their moral duty to replace humanity since they're the more intelligent species, save the earth, all that shit. And we also, I'll, you've mentioned the, like, best page of the entire comic. Um, not sure if I'm thinking the same exact part as you, but I want to note, since you brought up the food stuff earlier, the Magneto quote... I'm not a cruel man, you understand. It's been years since I've tasted flesh. 
human or otherwise. <laughs> uh, I mean, literally next issue he's going to say different, but I think a big part of this Magneto is that he is a massive hypocrite. Yeah. And, oh yes, and then here shortly we get to the whole um, Magneto talking to Scott about his children, about Wanda. Do you want to do Leonor's? She finds you very attractive, you know. She told me she's thinking of seducing you after her poetry reading in a... Oh yeah, the, he's they're doing a mutant language. This is the only time it's ever mentioned. <laughs> but he's trying to make a mutant language, which just post-Krakoa feels... Just like, oh wow, is this where that came from? Did Hickman read this and go, you know, maybe someone should actually do that? I feel like probably not, and it's probably just Convergent hitting the same ideas, but it is a prescient throwaway line, if nothing else. And then we have my favorite two panels in this entire book, which, like, already the, my daughter's planning on seducing you after her uh, poetry reading in a mutant language is already, like, that's great. You know, that is, that is, like, you would only get this in a Mark Millar comic. And for once, I mean that in a very good way. But then we get just, it's so good. Oh, and Cyclops. Yeah. This might sound like an unusual request, but if Quicksilver is around tonight, would you do me a favor and address me as father when we're standing in his presence? Uh, it's so good. <laughs> Quicksilver just wants his approval, and Magneto does not want to give any of it. <laughs> and we like, immediately... Why? He's such an asshole! <laughs> and we immediately cut to Wanda and Pietro together. It's a romantic, you know, sunset by uh, the lake. Yeah, with <laughs> dinosaurs in the background. And Pietro going, why does he take such pleasure in hurting me, Wanda? Have I really been such a bad son that I deserve to cry myself to sleep like this every night? And, uh, girl, girl. And Wanda says that Blob thinks it's because their existence as his children reminds Magneto of a quote-unquote moment of weakness with a homo sapien female. So implying that their mother is a human and that Magneto hates thinking that he had sex with a human woman. Oh, yeah, because it's still, um, it's still, oh, what's her name? Magda. Magda, yeah, it's still Magda in this. Apparently, Magneto told everyone that Quicksilver's mutant power is effeminate. Effeminate. The worst thing it could possibly be in a Mark Millar comic from the early 2000s. Yeah, and the two embrace each other and comfort in their sad moments, or in Pietro's sad moments anyway, underneath the canopy, as we see orange streaks of light across the sky, and Quicksilver looks up in fear, and the sentinels are coming down and blasting away at Magneto's base compound. And now we come to the other reason why this is my favorite issue. <laughs> Of this, this uh, first arc. What Magneto does to the Sentinels. It's so good. Chromian machines to kill a master of magnetism? No wonder we call ourselves Homo Superior. Any species this stupid deserves this little freefall down the food chain. <laughs> As he gets all the Sentinels with his powers, because they're all made of metal! 
And he rearranges their brains, their circuit boards, to change their prime directive from hunting and killing anyone with mutant genes to hunting and killing anyone without them. It's basically the same premise, different target, but same premise as the stunt he pulls with Mastermind to bring it back to X-Men 2. And... Or the stunt he pulls in Days of Future Past with the Sentinels. Yeah. And, like, as he's lifting them up, we specifically get this wide horizontal shot across the top of a spread of, like, him at the center, floating in the air, having arranged them all in a gigantic ring around him. Which, again, like, the way the page and panel are composed is just, like, emphasizing the extent of his power because he can lift these dozens at minimum of heavy-ass sentinels all at once without seeming to break a sweat and then, like, do intricate, like, rewiring on all of them at once. Um, this is why you do Magneto and the Sentinels in the same arc. Yeah, so you can get to watch him react to them and be like, uh-uh. Just be like, you guys are so stupid. Yeah. And we get, like, a panel of Mastermind just being the audience surrogate and saying, My god. Magneto sort of descends down, is telling everyone else, You have my ward, my brothers, that a thousand, no, a hundred thousand human beings will die tonight for every mutant lying bleeding at your feet. I want them to know what it feels like. I want them to smell their children's flesh burning in their nostrils. And Cyclops again is just like, I thought you wanted to teach the humans, not exterminate them. And Magneto says, Oh, humanity isn't going to die tonight, Cyclops. Just America. The rest of the world will soon fall into line when they see me dancing on the ashes of a president. And Magneto then flies off of his sentinel horde as Cyclops is watching on horrified, talking to Wanda and Pietro, who are just like, we have no way of stopping this. Just sort of let it happen. Scott tells them to drop dead and then clicks on one of the X's from his outfit that is a communicator and the issue just like ends with him being like professor we've got a situation that issue is genuinely very good but it also just has just god i love that fucking scene so much (laughs) both both big magneto moments in this the magneto is the world's worst dad moment and the uh magneto rearranging the sentinels just it's so cool yeah it's great And then we get issue six, which opens with Jean Grey shouting, You filthy two-faced dirtbag, as she telekinetically flings a naked Wolverine, or nearly naked, with his Comics Code Authority mandated boxers across the hotel room. Because he has told her about his original plan and orders during Pillow Talk. I hate that that scene is off panel it's weird to me it doesn't help me believe anything about this wolverine like changing sides because at no point do we see him thinking about xavier's ideology or considering it 
and maybe having the scene where he admits to now believing in it, you could have had him talk about why, but he just sort of doesn't. We have him with his puppy dog eyes telling Jean that he turned for her. <sighs> yeah, I think Xavier just manipulated his mind, frankly. I think it just took Xavier a little while to reprogram him because of the Weapon X protections. But that is the only explanation for this. Yeah, I wish I remembered more about how this plays out. But their little lover's quarrel is interrupted by Lim and everyone else in the Washington, D.C. region getting a mind message from Professor Rex, who essentially informs Lim that Magneto's on the way of a Sentinel fleet. They'll be here in about two hours. Evacuate the city. My X-Men will do everything we can to protect you. And we just get, like, the team, like, standing heroic and ready in front of the Lincoln Memorial and a bunch of that sort of stuff. While back in the Savage Land, Cyclops is getting ready to go back. And Quicksilver is still just like, you can't do anything. You're not fast enough to get there in time, blah, blah, blah. And Scott points out that he is and asks him, isn't it about time you stood up to your frickin' dad for once in your life anyway, you little snot? Everyone just beats on Quicksilver, and I'm like, what did this guy do? Aside, I mean, aside from all those people he blew up. Aside from all the mass murder? Well, he did the mass murder because his dad has just been shaming him. For no reason. His dad wants him to do the mass murder. His dad is lying about not being into the mass murder. He's just too quote-unquote effeminate for them all. Really, everyone's just oh. jealous that he's fucking his sister and they don't get to. I... <laughs> it's never not funny to bring up the fact that they fuck in the Ultimate Universe. It's always funny. Incest is just funny to me. It simply is. But... <laughs> Anywho, we then get another one of Qbert. We then get another of Qbert's just trademark big imposing two-page spreads with Magneto riding atop a sentinel and all the other sentinels behind him in an arc. Just the reign of terror that's coming atop our credit and title sequence for the issue. And by the next page, the sentinels have arrived and we get our first shots of them raining hell down on Washington with all of their blasts and everything, and... I hate that I can see the Natural History Museum specifically getting blown up. Damn. That is very nice and detailed in the drawing, though. I mean, yeah, I'm, like, I know where that building is, and that building that is getting blown up is in that place on the mall, and it's got kind of a domey roof thing. I'm like, yeah... Good attention to detail. You couldn't have had him blowing up the American History Museum across the road? Nope, the Natural History one? Alright. Let's lose the cool dinosaur skeletons, you assholes. <laughs> Again, just, this art is all so good. Like, the compositions are just always so brilliantly done in terms of just, like, there's a shitload going on, but it always feels easy to follow... And Kubert knows how to do, like, a direction of a line and a layout and just sort of lead you around and give you a lot to take in in a way that never feels, like, cluttered and hard to follow. 
I'm always losing track of which Cuba is which, but they're all so fucking good. Yeah, and I'll also shout out, we haven't talked about it much, if at all, but I will also mention the lettering job is well done throughout these in terms of bubble placements, in terms of page compositions, in terms of the lettering itself. You know, there's none of those weird, awkward spacing issues that are really noticeable when they happen. Like, there's no sorts of problems like that. The fit on everything is really nice. Really, every aspect of the visuals here is top-notch and is part of why I think this series is so good. But we then basically just get a bit of the X-Men fighting the Sentinels, and it's all very imposing, feels appropriately dangerous, like we get a sequence of Colossus like, underneath an almost fully descended sentinel boot before, like, thrusting it up, showing both the threat and his own strength, that sort of thing. I love Storm taking out sentinels from, like, miles away. She's, like, hiding on the other end of the mall, firing the, like, ball lightning at them, rather than being anywhere nearby. Um, also, I'm wondering if it's an intentional pun to have the X-Men fighting Sentinels in the National Mall because of the X-Men fighting Sentinels in a mall in the first episode of the animated series. I feel like probably not since it's so specific, but I now notice it now that you point it out. I just think that's kind of cute. That's yeah. Like, like, that That might be... I. You know, that's too subtle a joke for Millar to do it. Heh. <laughs> But yeah, like, it is fun to see Storm just sort of, like, looking out across the city and, like, clenching her fist in success. You know, she says, you know, I'm actually getting pretty good at this stuff. So just, like, a mini arc of Storm across the arc, getting a bit better of her powers. The rendering of, like, the metal flipping out and just getting fucked up by the lightning is very nicely rendered, too. Wolverine then rides in on his bike. He's going to be so much, so useful against the guy who can manipulate metal. Incredibly so. And he's like arguing telepathically with Gene, who's just like, I told you to stay out of this. And Logan's just like, I've got to help Charlie. He took a chance on me. Blah, 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 blah. And we then cut to another television broadcast of Magneto talking to the world saying <laughs> this is the other best page yeah listen carefully homo sapiens because i will say this only once your reign as earth's dominant species is formally at an end the creature you regarded as the most powerful man alive has just licked my boots clean his execution will now serve as a warning to any other world leaders who refuse to recognize their new position in the coming global order. Obey us, and you may live as our slaves and playthings. Disobey, and you will be categorized as mutant foodstuffs. America dies tonight at the age of 225. Your intolerance and all-consuming greed will not be missed. Again, just a wonderful dramatic supervillain Magneto speech. And specifically the second panel that's shown here in the broadcast is Magneto in front of a burning White House 
and in front of him is a naked George W. Bush curled up in a fetal position on the White House lawn grass. Can you believe he won a second term after this? Somehow. Which, I canonically, he must have done it in this universe, because he's still president and stuff, written in 2005 and six. Everybody just really didn't like John Kerry. <laughs> in our so world or this one. <laughs> Do you think the Democrats like will bring this up just like at every State of the Union address? Someone in the back will just like make a joke about bootlicking? If only. <laughs> I, you know what? If I ever meet George W. Bush, I'm going to give him a copy of this. Ask him to sign it. Yes! Ask him, him to sign. sign. Ultimates. Ask him to sign your rawhide kid slap lover. <laughs> well, you can have him sign your rawhide kid. I'll have him sign my ultimates, and then we'll both get ultimate X-Men signed. Anywho, Magneto is, like, lifting a car up with his powers, and then sending it hurtling back down towards the ground to smash George W. Bush. When it's moved out of the way, and Xavier has shown up, he has telekinesis in this version. Apparently. Which, like, that's new. Is that, like, an ongoing thing in the Ultimates, do you know? Or I was this just... I not remember him doing it at any other point. If Miller just didn't know. Because <laughs> it's like the alternative would be if he somehow fucked with Magneto's mind, but Magneto still has the helmet on. Yeah, like, it's a big plot point that he can't... See, you're like, if he has telekinesis, then why doesn't he just lift the helmet off? I'd be like, oh, he's distracted by the boot looking. Let me just move the helmet off him real quick. Yeah, this is a moment where it's actually strapped down. Yeah, this is a moment where it's actually kind of like, wait, what's happening here? Actually, but oh, well, this series keeps giving gifts. I'll overlook this one thing. And Magneto's lifting Xavier out of the wheelchair, fighting him while we get some more shots of the X-Men fighting the Sentinels, successfully taking a lot of them down, Bobby freezing them up, Hank jumping around, yada yada yada. You know, in some ways, your death means more than the murder of that shifty little daddy's boy anyway, Charles. Shifty little daddy's boy is just such a funny way to refer to GW. <laughs> it really is. As Magneto is, like, arranging a bunch of guns in a circle and like pointing a shitload of them at Charles at once and he's getting ready to televise Xavier's last moments and he just does the whole any last words and Xavier's just like I think you've just uttered yours and Magneto's just like what are you talking about before Wolverine stabs him through the back because Wolverine has turned sides he really likes that 19-year-old, and he's staying with Jean. And he says some stuff about Xavier offering him new options, which would have been fun. And by fun, I mean, frankly, prerequisite to this working, to have some actual just one-on-one -on -one before Xavier and Wolverine before this point, but it just did not fit in with how much shit was going on in the story. Uh, this could have been 12 issues. It probably yeah. would have been better as 12 issues. So if this was structured the way Ultimates is structured, 
We're at the end of the first six. We've not introduced Magneto yet beyond him sending Wolverine in. And the end of the first six is Wolverine trying to kill Xavier and being stopped. The way that the end of the first six of Ultimates is Hulk attacking everyone. And then the next six... Like, this feels like it should be a 12-issue, like, two-arc situation. But for some reason, it's not. Yeah, I have mixed feelings on it. Because, as I think I've made clear by now, I love the six issues as they exist. And, like, any gripes that I have are me, you know, critiquing something where I still really enjoy the final product. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, and, like, it throws a lot of shit out there, but because it has such forward momentum and such exciting art and everything, and just takes big swings, I really enjoy it. But there's definitely also the argument of, like, maybe with a little more time we could have polished it up even more and the sort of Wolverine character arc is maybe the chief example of that. Wolverine doesn't work, but I'm generally okay with that because Wolverine's not a character I care about especially. Yeah. Ultimate Wolverine is just sort of popular by default because he is a Wolverine, but he is very far from the best creation of the Ultimate Universe. He's... Or even Ultimate X-Men, which is not one of the best series overall it's one of the lesser versions of the character really for me uh, yeah easily i mean the soul patch alone he looks like such a douchebag and he is <laughs> i like 616 and i like laura and i frequently enjoy hugh jackman yeah and that's kind of it Oh, there's the alternate universe one who's dating Hercules, I think. Yeah. That's neat. That's a cool idea. I like that. Yeah. That's all I can think of. Oh, wait, no, AOA, where he's got the one hand that's cut off, and then there's a surprise reveal that he still has the claws, because they weren't popped when the hand got cut off. Yeah, okay, that one's great. But that is also still technically kind of 616. Yeah. But here, essentially... Wolverine tears over Magneto's vitals, but he's still trying to do all the damage that he can while he can, and basically does the whole nuclear thing of little like technical explanations like fire to pulse, overrode the controls, all the nukes on Earth are gonna go fuck everything up, thermonuclear war, and Gene's just like talking to the team about what needs to be done and how nothing is fast enough. But conveniently, Quicksilver has shown up in time because who's fast enough? Quicksilver, who speeds by, steals his father's helmet, and Magneto's just like, dear God. And Pietro says... That's what happens when you treat someone like dirt beneath your fingernails for their entire life, father. And then we get our first shot in the series of Magneto looking afraid as he just says, Charles. And we get the splash of Magneto screaming with his open bleeding chest wound, clutching his hands to his face. Oh, it's not quite a slur, but there we go. It's intended as one. Yeah, as he screams, calling Charles something that I won't repeat, as 
Xavier is fucking around with him and has lost his shit and is tired of being patient. And we get Magneto screaming, Charles, please, I'm begging you, spare my life and I swear I'll think any thoughts you want. And just, there's a bunch of shit going on. Charles is like making Magneto attract all the weapons and everything to him so that all the nukes or whatever is just gonna go off around Magneto, lift it up into the Earth's atmosphere to just take Magneto out while not damaging the city any more than's already been done. And we get Charles saying, Goodbye, old friend. Give my regards to the Dodo. And what is supposedly him killing Magneto, which there will be follow-up to that later in the series. And from that point, we just move forward a little bit in time to the mansion with Charles saying it's good to have Scott back in town and on the team. And Scott's just like, you know, talking about how he had left and being glad he didn't cause more damage. And Professor Mindfucker is just like, you were there when you were needed, and that's the only thing that counts. Blah, 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 blah. He only facilitated a couple terrorist attacks. Uh-huh. <laughs> you did exactly what I needed you to do. The implication that he intentionally manipulated Scott to go there because Scott's plane flying there is what alerted the government to Magneto and got them to send the Sentinels, resulting in him getting the chance to save the day from Magneto, I'm like, wow. I mean, that's good Charles Xavier writing, but also fuck Charles Xavier. Yeah. Uh, The specific dialogue, this entire episode has worked out precisely as I would have wanted. Hmm. And as they're talking, Xavier's petting his cat, talking about how Wolverine has proved himself as an X-Man, but... From what I hear, he'll be leaving in the morning to take care of unfinished business elsewhere because we have the Weapon X arc to finish out the first uh, year of publication. Weapon X is going to be starting right after this. And Scott's happy Wolverine's leaving because why the fuck wouldn't he be? We get shots throughout the mansion of the rest of the team playing video games, just reminding us, oh, the day is saved, the X-Men are here, it's all good, etc. And Charles and Scott keep talking about how their mission has resulted in some good PR for mutants, and everyone's thankful they saved the president, etc., etc. And it ends with Charles saying... Eliminating the Sentinels, opening the door of the Magneto's Brotherhood, and gaining the trust of Homo Sapiens was just phase one of our little master plan. Phase two promises to be a lot more interesting. And that is the notes on which the Ultimate X-Men debut arc ends, with Professor X just being like, I'm a scheming little bitch. Yeah. Yep. Was there anything we didn't touch on that you want to make sure we do? Nope, I I think that we got everything. I mean, my main thing was 
those couple of really great Magneto pages that I just had to talk about. I just... Uh, I... Mark Millar is really interesting as a writer in that I really dislike a lot of his instincts, but really love a lot of his ideas. Like, I think he's a really, really good writer who just has the worst instincts and in what to do with the good ideas that he has. If you know what I mean. Yeah. I will say I have one disappointment that's entirely on me. Because when I picked this... I thought that we were going to discuss my favorite line of X-Men dialogue, but we didn't, because I misremembered the issue number, because the ultimate X-Men Digimon reference is not until issue number seven, <laughs> so I picked the wrong story for us to read. We should have done the Weapon X arc. Maybe eventually? The introduction of homophobic Nightcrawler. There would be Nightcrawler to talk about, that's fun. But the only thing I can remember about this version of Nightcrawler is that he was the homophobic one compared to the regular. That, and I guess he was in the Weapon X program, which, what the hell? Yeah, because continuing the speed of light introduction of everything, the second arc is going to introduce Rogue and Nightcrawler, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think I remember it introducing the Juggernaut too. Yeah, Juggernaut's in Weapon X. Just like, here's a whole nother batch of mutants because we need to just throw everything in so quickly. And Juggernaut is annoyingly a mutant. Again, I'm weirdly attached to the Crimson Ruby of Sidorak, so, you know. Yeah, it's just one of those things they keep always doing because they're just like, we don't want to do that. Even though it's not particularly more complicated than anything else. Oh, well. I, well, it's because they never want to make him the main villain of, like, a anything more than an episode of a tv show yeah so then it's like how much time are you gonna spend explaining in a 20 minute thing and like the whole reason mutants exist in the first place is because stanley was sick of explaining superpowers and was just like what if they're just bored with them yeah then you just have to explain what a mutant is once and then they can just show up which is honestly a really great idea brilliant execution of working just your laziness into a brilliant idea that can then be built upon and take on great ramifications but uh yeah ultimate x-men um oh i guess i should oh wait sorry sorry before we go into the you picking thing one thing i did want to mention because we clearly haven't been talking about Ultimate X-Men for long enough, judging by how long this episode is. <laughs> I want to specifically note that in issue number six, in the bullpoint bulletins, which listeners who don't know is just pages that Marvel would have advertising upcoming books, there is specifically an in-house ad here advertising X-Force issue number 116, which I mention because we will be covering that soon, because that will be phase two in my argument for why 2001 popped off. Sorry, what are we reading next week, though? Okay, we will be reading the three-issue Outback-era X-Men Brood arc. So this is Uncanny X-Men issues 232, 233, and 234. It's fun, it's Claremont, it's Sylvester, it's the Outback X-Men, and it's the Brood. 
What's not to love? Fuck yeah. Brood. So yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean... Fuck yeah. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with the best X-Men villains. Bye. Excellent to each other.